From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. It's a great privilege and pleasure this week to be joined by Stephen Kotkin, the Berkland Professor of History and International Relations at Princeton and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Professor Kotkin is one of our foremost eminent historian of Russia and of the Soviet Union. He's famous for many of his books on Russia, but perhaps most famously his three-volume biography of Joseph Stalin, the first two volumes of which have already been published and go right up to the moment of the German invasion of Russia in 1941, and a third volume which we're all eagerly looking forward to very soon. So, uh, Stephen Kotkin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for the honor of the invitation. We're going to try and put what's going on uh, right now, obviously, in Eastern Europe in the context of the broader historical sweep of Russian history and try and get an understanding of what Vladimir Putin's aims, uh, objectives are, and where this may actually end up. And I'm going to start, if I may, with you by quoting right at the beginning of your second volume of the Stalin biography. You have a quote which is from Alexei, the son, the Tsarevich, the son of Nicholas II in 1917 after Nicholas had abdicated for both of them. And the quote is from the young boy, but if there isn't a czar, who's going to rule Russia? And I wondered if that's actually not only the right historical context in which to understand Joseph Stalin, where you put it at the front of that book, but whether that is the context in which we should understand what Vladimir Putin is. To a certain extent, Jerry, you're right. We don't want to compare Putin to Stalin. Uh, They're not in the same category. Stalin is in a category with Mao, and with Hitler, and it's a very small category. Uh, But unfortunately, Putin is replicating many of the historical pathologies that we see in Russia. And his regime, unfortunately, is also something that we see in Russian history, which is to say uh, autocracy, highly militarist, very repressive, using lies, and also suspicion of the West, blaming the West, anti-Westernism. It's a hole that they get into again and again, and he's now in that hole. If I may ask why, why does Russia seem to have this predilection for autocracy? It's not a cultural phenomenon. Russia people are great people. It's a fantastic civilization, enormous achievements in the arts and in science and in many other areas that your listeners will know. The problem is a geopolitical problem. The West is just more powerful than Russia. That's been true for hundreds of years, and it's true again today. The Anglo-American model of navies guaranteeing freedom of navigation and trade, especially free trade among free countries, is just more powerful than the Russian model of a landlocked Eurasian, predominantly land power, that doesn't have the kind of technology and doesn't have the kind of openness, dynamism that can compete successfully with the West. And so they try again and again to manage this gulf with the West, to manage the fact that the West is stronger and Russia wants to be in the rank of first powers. They do it by recourse to a strong state. What happens to that recourse to a strong state is they try to beat the country forward. They try to modernize, as they call it. They try to compete through coercion and through statism. And it sometimes seems to work for short periods of time, 
and then they generally hit a wall and enter a period of stagnation or decline. What happens to the strong state is we end up with personalist rule. Again and again, as they try to build a strong state, they don't get a strong state. They get the rule of a single person. And then the worst is a conflation between the survival of that single person's rule and the survival of the country. The task today for the West is to separate Putin from Russia, to destroy his conflation when he says that the survival of his regime is equal to the survival of the country. That's false. And it's our job to drive a wedge through that. I want to come on to that and how we drive that wedge. But first, talking as you just have done about Russia's historical weakness vis-a-vis the West, does that at least in some way perhaps help explain Vladimir Putin's motives in what he's done in Ukraine and in the Caucasus and elsewhere? There are those obviously here who say, you've been saying for a long time, we've provoked this. We have played on Russian insecurities. We've increased Russian insecurities by pushing NATO further and further east. And I'm wondering if that characteristic of Russia, that a sense of inferiority, of insecurity, whether that actually may be the reason why Putin right now has done what he's done. Jerry is wrong to blame the West. You know, NATO expansion didn't cause Ivan the Terrible to establish the Oprichnina and begin to murder his elites. NATO expansion didn't cause the imposition of serfdom, codified in law in 1649. NATO expansion didn't cause Peter the Great sacrificing how many lives to build St. Petersburg. And I could go on. It didn't cause Alexander or Nicholas's autocracies. It didn't cause Lenin's regime or Stalin's regime or Brezhnev's regime, and it didn't cause Putin's regime. The idea that NATO caused this is wrong because it presumes that had NATO not expanded, we would have a very different Russia in power today. And the problem with that argument is the Russia we have today fits a historical pattern. We've seen it before. It's not that big a surprise. And as I said, it's rooted in recourse to geopolitics and statism in the face of soaring ambitions and capabilities that don't match those ambitions. I'll even go further for you, Jerry. Had we not expanded NATO, had we not moved the borders of the West farther east, what would be happening today in the Baltic states, in Poland, and in other countries that were admitted to NATO? They would be in the same limbo that we unfortunately placed Ukraine in. So yes, the West has made some mistakes. Those mistakes include an empty promise in 2008 for Ukraine to join NATO and then no action whatsoever following that promise, which, as I said, left Ukraine in limbo. If all of Eastern Europe were in limbo, we would be in much worse shape. And in fact, moreover, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and others joining NATO has bucked up NATO, has made NATO less pacifist and more a military alliance, which is what it should be. So I don't want to suggest that the West never makes mistakes. And Jerry, of course, we live through those mistakes, and so we know them quite well. But Russia and Putin cannot be blamed on the West. 
Does that suggest that conflict really between the West and Russia is, is, is more or less inevitable? That again, this idea of some sort of a neutral buffer zone between Russia and the West was not a valid one. And as you say, if, if the Baltics hadn't been part of NATO, we can presumably assume that Russia would have either now or before now have, have attempted to retake those states. Is that where we are, given what you've described as Russia's kind of long-term historic weakness and given the insecurities that it feels and given our relative strength and the appeal of uh, the West to those countries on Russia's border? Is conflict just inevitable? Nothing is inevitable, Jerry. Those are always choices. Choices made by rulers and, of course, choices made by those people who back those rulers. So let's back up a second here. The Cold War was not a misunderstanding. The Cold War was not something where we made some uh, actions against the Soviet Union, we disrespected them, we didn't understand their sensitivities, and then Joseph Stalin decided he had to militarily conquer and impose clone regimes all over his neighbors because he felt disrespected or his sensitivities weren't taken into account. The Cold War was a fundamental clash of interests and values. It was also not a hot war. It was not a hot war in part because we understood ways to put our power up against their power without necessarily starting World War III. And so you can manage fundamental clash of interests and values. You can manage disagreements. You can manage them by being strong, but by also having very engaged diplomacy. The choice, however, is Russia's to make. They cannot revive the Soviet Union. It collapsed for all sorts of reasons, primarily internal, but also because of the West's resolve to stand up to it. You can't revive it, and so trying in ways to revive it, trying in ways to make up for the fact that you don't like the collapse, that you don't like the loss of empire, that you don't like your geopolitical position because you're farther from Europe, Central Europe today, than you were under Peter the Great because of your own collapse. Trying to make up for it is a strategic choice on the Russian side, which is not inevitable. If Russia were to relinquish its imperial mentalities, which, by the way, we don't know how deep they are in the population. We're talking about a person here and, and, a, and a narrow regime. If Russia were to relinquish them, I don't think we would have this conflict over Ukraine. Ukraine does not threaten Russia in any way, shape, or form. It threatens the Putin regime. Once again, conflation of the regime with the security of Russia. And so Russia could make some different choices here. Look at Germany, Jerry. Germany in post-World War II managed to become a remarkable country remarkably successful country, democracy, rule of law, open, dynamic market economy. Many people thought you could never get the kind of Germany we got, given the Hitler regime that was there. But we did get it, and it's a massive tribute to the Germans. And so transformation of a country is possible. We see it in Japan as well. The transformation of Russia is possible, but it's a choice and they have to make that choice and they have to decide to be not a great power in the first rank, which they are unable to do except at tremendous cost to themselves and, and war and, and crashing their economy. 
or a life of peace and prosperity with their neighbors, the kind of life that Germany chose. A lot of people have looked at the first few weeks of this war in Ukraine and estimated that Putin miscalculated in a number of ways. Do you, do you share that view? Yes, he did miscalculate because authoritarian regimes, they decay. They decay because the information begins to get narrower and narrower and worse and worse. Who's going to bring bad news to the czar? Who's going to tell the czar what he doesn't want to believe? In fact, the incentives are to lie and to bring information that comports with his predispositions. And in any case, he feels he's brilliant and knows better than everybody else. So he believed the propaganda, the Russian propaganda, the Chinese propaganda, and sadly, a lot of the commentary in the United States that the West was in perpetual decline. There was no hope anymore. American power was pretty much over. The rise of a multipolar world, the rise of China, etc. All of this seemed to be the case in his mind. And of course, it was all false. He believed that Russia and Ukraine are one people. In fact, it turns out that the Ukrainians, like the Taiwanese, don't want to be associated with an aggressive power that's unfree. And so he believed wrongly that the Ukrainian population wasn't really a nation. He believed that the Ukrainian state wasn't serious either. So if you have a whole bunch of assumptions, the West in permanent decay and about to be toppled for some fantasy of a multipolar world, Ukrainians not really being a nation, the Ukrainian government not being a real government. If you believed all that nonsense, then you could miscalculate and think you were going to be in Kiev in two days or four days and six days. They were going to welcome you as liberators. They were going to allow you to impose whatever dominion you wanted to impose. And so he looks like an idiot. But in fact, if you held the same assumptions that he held, then the strategy kind of made sense. But of course, each one of those assumptions was false. I mean, of course, famously, Joseph Stalin dramatically, and this is, I know, be a lot of your uh, subject of your third volume of his biography, dramatically miscalculated the threat from Germany and yet was able, you know, after an extraordinary uh, losses and extraordinary slaughter, was able to turn that around and actually to make Russia a great European power. So I suppose we shouldn't be too hasty in declaring Putin as having failed here. You're right, Jerry. Many people were saying Russia was 10 feet tall before the war, and now they're saying that Russia is 2 feet tall. In fact, it's neither 10 nor 2. Russia is about 6 feet tall. I'm 5 foot 5, so I think 6 feet tall is significant. They have a lot of capabilities that can do big damage to us, just like they're damaging Ukraine as we speak on this podcast. And Putin is damaging not just one country here, but two countries. He's damaging his own country as well. Differently from what he's doing to Ukraine, of course, but there's permanent damage to Russia here from Putin. But hollowed out authoritarian regimes can survive quite a long time, and they can lose wars and survive. Milosevic had to lose four wars in Serbia before he was finally taken out of power. And so you're right, let's not be too hasty here, but there is no way for Putin to win the peace 
even if he were to be successful in shattering Ukraine militarily. That's what I wanted to ask you. So let's talk immediately about the campaign that he's waging. Is there an outcome consistent with his objectives, but maybe short of outright occupation of Ukraine, that he could somehow portray as a victory and declare, you know, de- declare a victory and leave? Well, here's your problem with that, Jerry. Who's going to capitulate? Who's going to capitulate to Russia? So when Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, he got all the way to Moscow and he took Moscow and the Tsar refused to capitulate. And we know what happened in that case. When Hitler got to the approaches of Moscow, Stalin refused to capitulate and his regime held. You need someone on the other side to capitulate, to say, okay, we'll give you what you're demanding, we'll surrender, or we'll accede to your extortionist ultimatums. But then you have to be able to, not only does someone have to surrender, but you have to be able to enforce that. The problem with the Minsk Accords, Minsk I and Minsk II, covering eastern Ukraine, the so-called Donbass, the problem with them from the Ukrainian government's point of view was that they were a very clever Russian device negotiated when Ukraine was in really deep trouble and afraid of a wider war several years back and felt it had no choice and it capitulated to those Minsk Accords. And they were a clever device to make sure from Russia's point of view that Ukraine could never enter the West, the EU or NATO, because there would be this contraption in the East that Russia controlled that would infringe upon Ukraine's sovereignty. And so Ukraine capitulated in the war to sign those accords, but then it refused to implement them. This is what drove Putin up the wall. So having something on a piece of paper where you capitulate, having a public announcement, let alone a treaty, where you capitulate is one thing, but being able to enforce that capitulation is another. What he can do is he can level the country. He can shatter Ukraine in a way that we're unfortunately witnessing in real time, killing civilians, destroying infrastructure, leveling whole cities. But he can't occupy it successfully and impose his will. He doesn't have the size army to do that. He doesn't have the morale in his army to do that. He doesn't have the administrators to run the place. Let's remember, Jerry, that the Nazis never actually administered Ukraine. And those maps which show today Russian control of territory that they've invaded is not control. Those maps are wrong. That's the extent of Russian penetration, how far their forces have gotten. But they don't control that territory, just as the Nazis didn't control. Behind Nazi lines was a permanent insurgency of the population in Ukraine that made the Nazis fear, fear for their lives. When the Nazis took Kiev in 1941, they thought, oh, this is a great city, luxuriating in all the best hotels. And two or three days later, Jerry, those hotels began to blow up with the Nazi bosses in them. This is one of the reasons the Nazis didn't take Leningrad, instead decided to surround it and starve it into submission because they were afraid that 
the city would be booby-trapped like Kiev was. If you're an administrator for Russia and someone brings you tea to your office, you're going to drink that tea? You're going to turn on the car ignition? You're going to turn on the lights to your office? All it takes is a handful of assassinations or explosive devices to scare the bejesus out of all the administrators, even if you had them, but you don't have them for a country this size. So what could he accept again that would be consistent with his stated objectives? I mean, I know his stated objectives run from the sort of historic unification of the Russian and the Ukrainian people to, you know, denazification and all of these various preposterous ideas he's come up with. But given the challenges, as you just explained very well, of occupying and controlling essentially a hostile population, what can he accept that would meet at a minimum his objectives? This is what all the negotiators in real time are trying to figure out right now. Naftali Bennett, the Prime Minister of Israel, Saul Ninisto, the President of Finland, Xi Jinping in Beijing, the accomplice to this criminal activity on the part of Russia, and many others, including President Zelensky and his team in Kiev. What will this guy accept to look like a partial victory, a face-saving way out of this war, short of 10 million refugees, we're close to 3 million now, but we could get to 10 million, short of a complete flattening of all these historic cities. And the answer is, we don't know yet. His demands are neutrality for Ukraine and demilitarization, recognition of the autonomy or potentially the independence of Luhansk and Donetsk, so-called people's republics, and recognition of Russia control over Crimea. Suppose a Ukrainian government grants that. Suppose Zelensky grants that because he doesn't want to see more innocent lives lost through indiscriminate Russian bombing. Does that stick? Putin then takes his troops and goes home and declares victory, and then the Ukrainians say, like they did with Minsk, well, we won't implement this. And moreover, world governments say we don't recognize this because it was under duress. It was while Ukraine was a hostage that they agreed to this. So all we can figure out right now, Jerry, is that Putin himself is looking for some option that he thinks could be victory. You know, when Brezhnev went into Czechoslovakia in 1968 with the tanks, Jerry, the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia because there was something called the Prague Spring, socialism with a human face. Reform of communism dissolves communism. There's no reform equilibrium. You can't liberalize a communist system and get to a stable place because people say, I don't want democracy inside the party. I want other parties. And the reform process dissolves the communist monopoly. So Brezhnev sent in the tanks. He kidnapped Alexander Dubček, the head of Czechoslovakia, and his whole team, and brought them to Moscow. And they're sitting in the Kremlin. And Brezhnev says to Dubček, Sasha, what do we do now? And Dubček is speechless because he's just been kidnapped, his country's been invaded, and there doesn't seem to be a plan in the Kremlin for what comes next. And so Brezhnev returned Dubček to power in Prague after invading the country and kidnapping him. And so we think there's some kind of master strategist in the Kremlin. There's a master tactician 
In fact, Putin has destroyed his reputation, which I never believed for being a master tactician. He's only enhanced his reputation for being a killer. And so it almost falls to the Ukrainians, to President Zelensky and to the West to figure out how to give Putin a way out here, sadly. We need to take a quick break now, but when we come back, I'll have more with Stephen Kopkin of Princeton University on Ukraine, Vladimir Putin and the history of Russia. Stay with us. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. I'm back with Stephen Kotkin, professor of history at Princeton, talking about Vladimir Putin, Russia and Ukraine. Putin's repeatedly threatened um, NATO and the West that he would respond to any intervention. We're seeing, obviously, significant military supplies being channeled to Ukrainian forces. We saw, just last weekend, Russian missiles attack a uh, kind of an international base, sort of a staging post for a lot of that support, just 12 miles, I think, from the Polish border. What's the risk, do you think, that he is tempted here to escalate and that he sees these supplies, even though the U.S. is firmly backing away from a no-fly zone or even from allowing those jets to be flown over from Poland to Ukraine. What's the risk that he sees an opportunity for him perhaps in escalating or is he just actually not so crazy as to want to attack a NATO country? Jerry, we don't know. That's the problem. You know, it's one thing to be very bold on cable TV and on op-ed pages and to call for NATO-imposed no-fly zone, NATO troops on the territory of Ukraine it's another thing to call for that when you're sitting in the Situation Room. Russia has a lot of capabilities. They have more nukes than we do, and those nukes work. And we have mutual assured destruction. And yes, if he nukes us, we nuke him. Do we want to even be in a conversation like that, Jerry? One of the reasons that Ronald Reagan was so enamored of Star Wars and of arms control was because he hated mutual assured destruction. He thought that's a terrible way to protect the security of the American people and our allies. And so deterrence works, Jerry. It works and it works until the day it doesn't work because someone has the capabilities and they decide to use it. And we just can't know. Isn't Putin conducting kind of nuclear blackmail? Yes, he is, Jerry, but he has the capability. And he's showing, or at least he wants us to believe, that he's potentially a madman and could escalate in that direction because he wants that kind of leverage. And maybe it's a bluff, Jerry, uh, but what if it's not a bluff? And so let's take the no-fly zone, for example. You impose a no-fly zone, Jerry, when the other side doesn't have an air force and doesn't have anti-aircraft. You don't impose a no-fly zone when the other country has that air force and has that anti-aircraft. What you're talking about is not a no-fly zone, that's a misnomer. You're talking about firefights in the air. You're talking about a war. You're talking about initiating a war against Russia in the air to gain air superiority. And so certainly that's an option. NATO could do that. There's no doubt that NATO has those capabilities. But you would be initiating the war that Putin claims he's fighting. 
He claims he's doing this because he's threatened by NATO. We know that's a lie, and the world knows that's a lie, because NATO is a military defensive alliance and did not initiate any hostilities vis-a-vis Russia, and neither did Ukraine for that matter. And so not only do you play into his propaganda, but you play into a situation where he has capabilities and you can't control him not using them. And it's not only nukes, Jerry. Russia has many tools that can damage us. And those tools haven't been used yet. But maybe he has the ability to use those tools, and we would be very sorry if he did. And so it's right to say, and I back this a thousand percent, that any action against a NATO member that constitutes an act of war would be met by invoking Article 5. That is to say, the NATO treaty, which says an attack on one is an attack on all, and we will respond militarily. That is correct, and I support that. But initiating a war with him or allowing him to employ capabilities that he has not yet but that he could, I think we have to be cautious, certainly if we're sitting in the situation room. We've seen reports over the weekend that Russia's seeking support from China, maybe some military uh, material support for its campaign in Ukraine. China's denied those reports. I'm wondering, given again, given your historical perspective, China and Russia have a complicated history, certainly over the last 75 years or so. I'm wondering if maybe perhaps another ramification of, of this war, of this decision by Putin is increasingly to make Russia a kind of dependency of China. That's already happened to a large extent, Jerry. But this is a world in which the United States and its allies are dominant. We have the technology, the highest end technology. We have the R&D. We have the open universities and science. They have some of it, but they're dependent on technology transfer. And China doesn't have the technology that Russia needs to transfer it even if they want to because in some cases China doesn't have it for itself. And so we're at an inflection point vis-a-vis China here, Jerry. China's double game, I hope, is over. They play a double game whereby they take full advantage of all the openness and global institutions of the West, including the dollar and the global financial system. China is the largest user of the dollar in the world because it's the biggest trading nation. And that double game should be over now, Jerry. And they should not be allowed to do what they do, cheat, lie, play all sorts of non-reciprocal games with trade, steal technology, support regimes like Russia's, and be given legal access to all of our Western institutions and advantages. And so it's put up or shut up now for us vis-a-vis China. If China doesn't get Russia to climb down, if Putin doesn't end up in Beijing with asylum or whatever it might be, if China thinks it can walk from this aggression and keep all of its trade with Europe and keep its access to American domestic markets, it should be wrong in that assumption. And the time for that, Jerry, is now. And it would be great if China stepped up, applied pressure on Russia and said, we don't want to be accomplices in your aggression. We want to keep our trade with Europe. We want to keep our prosperity. We want Xi Jinping to get his third unprecedented term this fall. 
I don't think China's going to do that, but I would be pleasantly surprised if they did. And of course, there's a meeting with our national security advisor and his Chinese counterpart today, just as we're speaking on this podcast. So we'll see how far China goes in either being deeper in being an accomplice here or in turning and putting pressure on the regime in Moscow to back off of this. China cannot save Russia, but China can save itself, or at least try to save itself, and we'll see. Let's turn back to Russia briefly in the time we have remaining. Um, you said earlier that it's our task, our challenge, is to drive a wedge between Putin and the Russian people. How do we do that? We're doing the opposite now, Jerry. We're doing a form of collective punishment, which of course is not usual for the West, right? We're punishing all Russians for Putin's aggression. We took away the option for all Russians to bank or use credit cards, including those who are fleeing from Putin's regime. Instead, we should be providing sanctuary and additional banking options for them. Instead of closing down, removing internet companies from Russia, we should be expanding internet coverage inside Russia so that people can get alternative sources of information, alternative from the Putin regime. Our great global internet giants should be going deeper into Russia. Yes, it could enable that regime's propaganda, but that propaganda is not working as well as it worked not that long ago. And instead, we need alternative sources of information. We need to support people who have the courage to stand up to the Putin regime rather than to crush them too with our sanctions. It's one thing to sanction the regime, especially with technology transfer. And I support that a thousand percent because that hurts the regime and it hurts the hard men around Putin who watch their military industrial complex decline without that high-end technology. It's another thing to hurt the civilian population and drive them into the hands of the regime because we're treating them as accomplices when they're not. And so there should be every manner, every trick, every opportunity to enable people to defect from that regime, whether it's internally inside Russia whether it's on the territory of Ukraine or it's abroad as refugees in, in Armenia, in Georgia, and in every other place, Turkey, where Russians are fleeing. Let's remember, the Russian army could disintegrate if enough pressure was applied, the Russian army in Ukraine. Why aren't we granting them safe corridors? Why aren't we granting them the kind of asylum or uh, excuse from any repercussions of war crimes in order for them to defect? Why aren't we driving a wedge between the commanders and the general staff in Moscow, the commanders on the field? We should be driving these wedges everywhere we can. This should be about peeling off all Russians from Putin, removing that conflation that is his power. And we have many tools that we're either employing too meekly or employing not at all. We're talking about a no-fly zone. We should be talking about enticing and protecting defectors from the Russian military inside Ukraine. You talked about the weaknesses of 
autocrats, of dictators, the tendency to surround themselves with yes men, not to listen to things they don't want to hear, to cut themselves off from bad news and reality. How vulnerable is Putin? I mean, you think Stalin died in his bed, Lenin died in his bed. Is realistically, given Putin has now been cementing his power in Russia for 22 years more than that, is it realistic to think of him in terms, and and as you've just described, the the Russian people are not getting um, access to information that could make them hostile to the regime. Is he really, is, is he vulnerable? We don't know, Jerry. One of the hardest things for us to figure out is the internal dynamics of that regime and what's happening on the inside. We know what's happened historically. We know what the patterns are. We know what to watch and look for. But it's very hard to judge, and I would caution against wishful thinking. It would be the solution for the Ukrainians who are dying as we speak if Putin were removed and someone who replaced him declared an immediate ceasefire. That would certainly be the solution. People have been talking about the collapse of the Putin regime economically or politically for as long as I can remember. And so supreme caution on any wishful thinking here. All coups fail, Jerry, until the moment one succeeds. And you can't tell beforehand. And you have a problem in an authoritarian regime of collective action. If you want to move against Putin and get others involved in your conspiracy, you run the risk that one of them will snitch, immediately run to Putin and tell him that you're plotting against Putin. And they'll snitch because they want to save their own lives. They're afraid that somebody else is going to snitch before them. And so it's very difficult, the collective action problem. You have to somehow remove Putin's bodyguards and get other bodyguards in place, or maybe his kitchen staff or his household staff, or other ways you think you might get to him. And he knows this, and he has insulated himself from these kinds of actions. And as I said, they all fail, these palace coups or internal putches, until one succeeds and you don't know. And people involved in them don't know if it's going to fail or succeed until the moment it does either way. So I would say this, Jerry. I would say that what we need is a high-level defector from the security and military part of the regime to get on a plane and fly to Helsinki or fly to Warsaw or fly somewhere else and condemn this regime in public and say others... uh, are also against this regime and think that this war is criminal and maybe embolden and encourage those on the inside to act. It would be great to see something like that. And I'm sure our intelligence services are working on enticing just such a defector. But Jerry, people can defect quietly. They can get an order and not pass it along, the chain of command. They can pass it along, but then someone else lower down decides not to implement it. They decide not to implement it because they feel it's a criminal order. And so defection, short of a palace coup, is another way that this could unravel. You're a despot only provided everybody implements obediently all of your commands. Final question, Stephen, and thank you very much indeed for an absolutely fascinating conversation. As I said earlier, we've been dealing with the, the, the Russia problem in the West for at least a couple of centuries longer. Is there 
whether or not Putin survives, whoever, if he does survive or if he doesn't survive, who he's replaced by, can we expect ever to be able to live in a sort of peaceful coexistence? We, you know, after, after the Soviet Union fell in 1991, we had about 15 years of, I suppose, of relatively peaceful coexistence. It seemed like 15 minutes at the time. Is there any chance at all of a kind of normal, peaceful coexistence between what we think of as the West and Russia? Yes, there is, Jerry. We have to share the world. We cannot perform a Pygmalion-like transformation on all of those regimes we don't like. And so we have to figure out a modus vivendi. That's what diplomacy is for. If you're strong and you have deterrence and you negotiate from positions of strength, you can reach accommodations with these regimes. The issue is not accommodation, Jerry. It's accommodation on whose terms and on what terms. You can have a Munich 1938 accommodation, or you can have a Cold War-style accommodation where we're not going to let you expand and we're going to keep the pressure on and we want to modify your behavior short of changing your regime in the short term just because we want to live in peace and prosperity. And so it can be done. It can only be done from a position of strength. And it can only be done with active diplomacy. We have two problems with our establishment that I would just, in simplified form, I'd like to end with. One is we have a lot of hawks who love applying pressure, but then don't have any diplomatic channel to pocket the concessions that come from the pressure. And then we have a lot of diplomats who love to engage in diplomacy, but without the deterrence, without the strength, without the big military, without the threats, and then you don't have any leverage. So I return again to Ronald Reagan and George Shultz, and I see the way Reagan and Shultz were able, A, to marshal that strength, and B, to have a simultaneous process of diplomacy so that the strength would be realized in a relationship on our terms, not on someone else setting the terms. And the other side wanted that relationship because it too wanted some of that prosperity. It wanted some of the stability, uh, but not on its terms, more on our terms, on Western terms. That's entirely possible, and we can recover that. And this is a grand moment delivered to us by the courage, the bravery, the resolve of the Ukrainian people and their government, and we need to take advantage and not squander this moment. Stephen Kotkin, Professor of History and International Relations at Princeton and foremost author and writer on Russia. Thank you so much indeed for joining Free Expression this week. Jerry, it's a great show. It was an honor to be on. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's it for us this week from me, Jerry Baker, with Free Expression from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Please join us again next week. 